On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, conspiracy theories, and urban legends, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. These people are as stupid as the day is long. This giant snake having this wrestling match with the alligator. It's the story you really haven't heard, the murder of Lobster Boy. It's all in the name of spring vacation, rollicking with the hilarious abandon of his wacky, warm, wonderful young people. No recollection of that happening at all. At all. This store sells some good liquor. <laughs> they told me what I did was stupid, and I'll be facing some charges here soon. Probably go to jail, probably not. We'll see. In 2013, a new and uproarious American folk hero rode in on the prehistoric back of a writhing alligator, a character living with the kind of total abandon that exists only in the strange swamps of our most humid, half-forgotten dreams. In the age of social media clickbait, the meme known as Florida Man became what I believe to be a permanent archetype, one that continues to gather power through a variety of unhinged mugshots and bizarre local news headlines, such as Florida Man driving with clown mannequin had live grenade in his pickup truck. Florida Man tries to evade arrest by cartwheeling away from cops. Florida man tries to walk out of Walmart with chainsaw stuffed down his pants. And of course, Florida man walks into strangers' home, removes clothes, starts shouting, five, six, seven, eight, grandma, grandma. And though Florida man memes are irresistible in their passing absurdity, we also know in the backs of our minds that there are far more to these stories unfunny parts, drug addiction, mental health issues, the prison industrial complex. But these are issues that exist in each and every state, and yet only Florida has a superhero, bumbling as he may be. So today we will ask the question, what is it about Florida that produces our Florida men or Florida women or Florida non-binaries, all of whom shall live under the title Florida man today? We'll look at the unique history of what's been called the weirdest state in the nation with its invasive swamp creatures, its cracker cowboys, its rum runners, its freak show retirement community, its spring breakers, and its shady presidential election to see how the groundwork has long been laid for Florida man to rise to the status of the legend we know today. Just like the modern era, the intellectuals of America have always had their feelings about Florida. 
transcendentalist Ralph Waldo Emerson called it a grotesque place in 1827, and writer Lawrence P. Lessing summed up the general perspective well in a 1948 Fortune magazine article. Quote, Something in Florida is humid, languorous, and has, like a poultice, attracted pirates, derelicts, remittance men, thieves, madams, gamblers, black market operators, and all the infections of Western life. Here in one concentration may we study with a kind of fascination all the ulcers of the modern world. Tiffany, this is truly odd and, and a very disturbing story. What do you know? Cynthia, certainly a first for me in my career. You know, police sources are telling me that the man rushed here to this hospital, had no face left, that he was completely unrecognizable after this attack, an attack that the city of Miami police are not officially giving us much details about. The eyes of the internet shot to the southernmost state as unthinkable news broke on May 26, 2012, the story of the bath salt crazed face-eating zombie that the always sensitive media dubbed the Miami Cannibal. A Florida man had stripped off his clothes in the middle of the day and then attacked an unhomed man, wrestling him to the ground before clawing at and then eating parts of his face. Though he became the poster child for the terrifying danger of the drug panic of the moment, bath salts, later toxicology reports found only a small amount of weed in his system. Hear more about this on our episode called Drugs. But regardless of the circumstances, the jaded internet gleefully shared stories of the Miami cannibal with the unsubtle implication. Of course, this happened in Florida. As detailed in Logan Hill's expansive Washington Post investigation, Is It Okay to Laugh at Florida Man?, the official origins of the meme are less remarkable. A PR stunt from an associate editor at GQ, Freddie Campion, who created the anonymous Twitter account at underscore Florida Man with the bio reading Real Life Stories from the World's Worst Superhero. And then he started tweeting out the most bonkers local news headlines and mugshots that he could find. His posts went viral, far more viral than he expected, and almost immediately, copycat accounts popped up everywhere. A subreddit sprang to half a million users, and exhausting Florida man listicles with their flurry of ads became the hottest new clickbait. The next year, the meme would cement its place in the mainstream, with brand new late night host Seth Meyers relying on the headlines and mugshots as his first reoccurring bit, Fake or Florida. 
And then in March of 2019, the Florida Man Challenge renewed its virality, encouraging everyone to Google their birthdays with the words Florida Man and then post the craziest one you could find. What's your Florida man story? Yours was good. Mine well, was bizarre. <laughs> right, it involved a man trying to smell a woman's feet in a library and a police chase on a scooter. So take all that all in this that morning. All that together. Mine was a man arrested for attempting to kidnap Lana Del Rey at a concert in Orlando. Of course. Florida right? man. we got to be specific. It's a Florida man, not just any man. Not just any man. <laughs> now you can head to our special... My result? Florida man arrested after allegedly shoving steaks worth more than $50 down his pants. It's interesting that while so many of his mimic colleagues of yore went the way of nostalgic obscurity, Florida man has been a consistent joke going on six years, remaining fresh with each new offering from America's favorite freak factory. The go-to explanation for why the Florida man trope exists, and it is indeed part of the story, is often Florida's government in the sunshine law, which allows anyone to gain access to much of state and local government records. Passed after the Nixon-Watergate scandal of the 1970s, the idea was to give the public access to what their elected officials and tax dollars were actually doing behind the scenes. However, these open government records also include police reports and mugshots, all the content needed for any sensational content machine. These records are requester-friendly, meaning that one need not provide much information at all about themselves or their intentions. This issue certainly gives us a logical explanation for Florida's supremacy when it comes to noteworthy arrests, but it doesn't totally account for the phenomenon either. Although Florida's laws are some of the most liberal, a lot of other states offer similar access to the same type of records. And since absolutely outrageous stuff happens in each and every state, as we can all attest to, we still must ask the vital question, what is it that makes Florida so special? When you hear noise nearby while riding your bike on a path through the Everglades, it really gets your attention. It was just this giant snake, the, the Burmese python, that was having this wrestling match, I guess you would call it, with the alligator. And you would see the snake rolled up, and you would see the alligator's tail moving under the water, then it would flap over the water, trying to hit this python in the, in the head with its tail, and it always missed, and you would... We can begin our study of Florida man by looking at his strange surroundings, an environment and climate very alien to the rest of the United States. Some of the most beloved Florida man stories are accompanied by Florida animal, such as 
Florida man accused of forcing small alligator to drink beer, Florida man caught picking hallucinogenic mushrooms with alligator in backpack, Florida man traps 12-foot python in barbecue grill, Florida man hunting for hogs attacked by 10-foot alligator, and Florida man uses stand-your-ground defense in iguana death. The state is a peculiar one when it comes to its flora and fauna. Full of invasive species and uncommon creatures, with nature stories so wild they border on urban legends. For example, the thousands of Burmese pythons that continue to multiply all over the Everglades, sucking the life out of the small mammals of the area, throwing off an ancient ecosystem. The first of these pythons, which can grow to a whopping 20 feet, was spotted in the 1930s, likely brought over as an exotic pet and then released when it grew way too big. The cocaine-powered hypertackiness of the 1980s saw a renaissance of the exotic pet industry and the buyer's remorse that led to their eventual release. But shit really popped off in 1992, when in some kind of B-horror movie cold open, Hurricane Andrew demolished a python breeding facility, and the snakes slithered into the wet forests to lay their 100 eggs a year. With the city of Miami going about their business just 30 miles away. The Sunshine State is also the only place in the entire world where alligators and crocodiles live side by side. In his book, Oh Florida, Craig Pittman explained that in 2005, quote, an Everglades National Park biologist named Skip Snow shot a photo of a 13-foot python that had tried to swallow a 6-foot alligator. As the gator was being swallowed, it apparently clawed at the python's stomach, making the snake explode. While feral hogs snort around every county, headlines also appear like alien iguanas fall from Florida trees during cold snap because when it gets too cold, the giant lizard's claws can go stiff and they can lose their grip, sending them hurtling to Earth. The cold weather in South Florida stirring up the perfect recipe for iguanas to fall from the sky. Okay, maybe the trees, but still, watch your head. No, don't want to be there for that. I would freak out. I would too, because oh, yeah. like they're knocked out, yep. and then all of a sudden it's like, Uh-oh. they're back. Yeah, yeah, no thank you. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. 
Factor will provide you with delicious, never frozen, ready to eat gourmet meals that are chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. And now back to the show. Of course, to understand Florida Man, we also have to understand the history of the place that he hails from. Way back in 1783, the Spanish took control of the land back from the English, who held it for 20 years after the Treaty of Paris was signed. Boring. So most of the British occupants headed north, and since the Spanish weren't rushing in to populate the area and didn't send enough soldiers to patrol the border, the area took on a life of its own. It became an attractive option for those escaping slavery, as well as free black people and indigenous people seeking a life off the grid of white supremacy. Eventually, the Spanish actually encouraged Black people to come and live in the state, offering equal rights of marriage and property, as long as they converted to Catholicism, even refusing to return the formerly enslaved to the planter class and politicians who demanded it. There were others, too, who came from the backwoods of Georgia and South Carolina, Anglo-Saxons, as well as Irish and Scottish immigrants, who sought a different life outside of the crushing conditions of poverty and indentured servitude. Becoming known as the Florida Crackers, some of these new residents would create their own counterculture and their own shadow economy, working as rustlers for cattle kingpins, both legally and illegally, with virtually no regulation. Their moniker was likely gained through the loud sound their whips made as they ran cattle from place to place in their signature style. Now, to get a feel for the general vibe of the chaos of a lawless cracker life, the area was prone to mosquito-assisted epidemics, and the crackers believed the antidote to these ailments was to shoot off cannons into the sky. Perhaps the first known Florida man, Bone Mizell, was born in a tiny community called Horse Creek in 1863, 
one of 12 children who grew to be a pale and bony six foot five, disheveled and devilishly good humored, a fun drunk, a crazy drunk, a tried and true bare knuckled wild card. Bone was the man you went to when you needed to ID a cattle brand or if you needed a cattle brand altered slightly in order to conceal its origins. He became well-known working for some of the richest cattle kingpins in the country, and it was said that Old Bone could kill a fly on the rear of a cow with his bullwhip while standing 18 feet away without the cow even noticing. And then, as always, in came the coastal elite to study the peculiar sociology of the Florida man. The famous artist and writer Frederick Remington had made his name as an oil painter of heroic cowboys and dangerous Indians, contributing in no small way to the archetypes of the Wild West that last to the present day. At the behest of Harper's Magazine, Remington would head down south in 1895 to meet this early relative of the cowboys he so revered, to learn their ways, to paint them into history. Well, let's just say that what Frederick Remington found down south was not quite as romantic to him as what he had found out west. His article described the Florida Crackers as, quote, Wild-looking individuals, whose hanging hair and drooping hats and generally bedraggled appearance would remind you at once of the Spanish moss, which hangs so quietly and helplessly to the limbs of the oaks out in the swamps. The only things they did which were conventional were to tie their ponies up by the head in brutal disregard and then get drunk in about 15 minutes. Out in the wilderness, low-browed cow folks shoot and stab each other for the possession of scrawny creatures not fit for a pointer dog to mess on. Beside these descriptions was a black and white sketch of a man wearing a low hat and sitting on a horse titled Bone Mizell. The first Florida man was officially in print circulation. Now, Frederick Remington was not alone in his opinion of the local color. A French intellectual called the Comte de Castelnau, or something, who had passed through the area, called the Florida crackers, quote, Dull, sturdy, bold, addicted to drinking. They leap about and howl and make no effort to restrain their passions. They are not checked by human laws. These cannot reach them in the midst of the woods. These men know no other power than physical force and no other pleasure than carrying out their brutal passions. He felt it especially noteworthy that the folks of the area loved, and I mean loved, to watch a good brawl, literally wading around in the town square while they, quote, imitate a cock and cry out from on horseback, I am a horse, but I defy anyone to ride me. 
the Florida Crackers created enough intrigue that by the early 1900s, they were the focus of some of the earliest Technicolor movies, ones that showed endless scenes of ragged cowboys who stabbed, shot, drank with abandon, and cheated their way through a series of misadventures. Bone Mizell died in 1921 at the age of 58, and legend has it that when asked why he would not be performing an autopsy, his doctor replied, I don't have to test him. I know that right now old Bone would test a good 90 proof. Considering the year of his death, I have to honestly wonder if Bone died just so that he would not have to endure the coming decade of vice control that he would have absolutely freaking hated. But it was this era of restriction that would actually change America's tune when it came to the Sunshine State. Because at this time, he was their only hope. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, bitch. It's Florida Man. Two people at the center of this now viral video showing a man chasing people around this convenience store in Jacksonville with an alligator. Well, they are now facing charges. He takes the animal in the beer fridge as well. I don't even remember coming up here. We asked where the alligator came from. No clue. <laughs> no clue. I literally came to the store and he was in the back of the truck. They told me what I did was stupid and uh, I'll be facing some charges here soon. And probably go to jail, probably not, we'll see. Today, drunken antics are one of the cornerstones of the Florida man meme. For example, Florida man gets DUI after driving scooter into Walmart shelves. Drunk Florida man tries to use taco as ID after his car catches fire at Taco Bell. Florida man struck by car asks if beer is okay. And Florida man charged after calling 911 over lack of vodka. But a century ago, in the era of 1920s prohibition, this lack of vodka was a widespread woe, and Florida man had to ask himself, who would he be if not for the nectar that powers him? Many thirsty tourists from all over the South were asking themselves the same question. And when a solution presented itself, they began a long courtship with the state they once called unsavory. A cool 60 miles from Grand Bahama Island and its nine liquor-producing operations, the Florida coast was easily accessible by boat via Jamaica and Cuba, and massive amounts of booze were smuggled in daily, wrapped in brown paper like fish or mixed into wooden boxes full of produce and other goods. Some carried liquor in large metal containers attached to the bottom of their ships, able to cut a rope and send it to the bottom of the sea at the first sign of the Coast Guard. For a free bottle, fishermen would take up posts as lookouts, proud to serve the rum runners for the greater good of their communities and for the greater good of themselves, 
just like the prominent politicians and authorities who were content to look the other way, for a healthy enough bribe, that is. And anyway, once a boat reached three miles from land, the Coast Guard had no jurisdiction, and the lawlessness of the lawless sea prevailed. It was here that dozens of large ships would drop anchor in a long line dubbed Rum Row, a hub where buyers in smaller boats would load up with booze and head to shore, able to outmaneuver the water cops and deliver bottles directly to vehicles waiting in clandestine locations. But as competition grew, each ship needed something to set them apart from their competitors, and Rum Row would become something out of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. The larger ships threw full-blown soirees, complete with exuberant bands and happy hour specials to attract new buyers and sightseers. Some flew banners advertising these unregulated parties, going so far as advertising sex workers who wisely charged twice their fee when consorting with these likely extremely annoying men. If a ship was busted by the Coast Guard or Rum Row had to chill out for a second to wait out a potential raid, there was no shortage of daredevil pilots in small planes, many of whom learned their skills in World War I, willing to load up a cabin full of rum and shakily navigate their way through the winds to ramshackle landing strips scattered across the state. I came down today, came up to me, same gorgeous, tall, blonde-haired, brown-eyed, good-looking, tan guy, and really, and I think they're found in I came here to get... It should come as no surprise then that the first spring break college party celebration was held in Fort Lauderdale in 1938, slowly growing in popularity through co-ed word of mouth until 1959 when Time magazine printed an article titled Beer and the Beach, with one young man telling the reporter, quote, it's not that we drink so much, it's that we drink all the time. The next year, a movie starring a young Connie Francis and George Hamilton, based on a book called Where the Boys Are, showed America the sexy scene at Fort Lauderdale, following four female college students who head south straight out of the safety of the Midwest and into the dangerous underworld of spring break. It's all in the name of spring vacation, rollicking with the hilarious abandon of his wacky, warm, wonderful young people. Last morning is a rotten egg! As they bring good cheer and confusion to the natives and hysterics to the audience in the screen's biggest bonanza of bang-up entertainment. Where the the movie more than doubled the attendees the next year, inspiring tens of thousands to test the boundaries of their suburban-era conservative values, ready to get absolutely shit-faced and hook up with an alluring stranger or three. 
But the heavy petting and all-night necking of the 1960s soon gave way to the far raunchier 1970s, and free love found a home in Fort Lauderdale, with public displays of all kinds of affection. And cool games, such as balcony diving, that is, climbing from balcony to balcony to get to new parties on different floors, often while holding a beer at the same time. Hotel rooms were destroyed, property-damaging pranks were pulled, and the unrelenting pandemonium continued to amp up and outrage locals, with each passing year giving us new wonders. The wet t-shirt contest, the floating dance platform, the three-way kiss, all of which were soon projected across America by the 1980s as part of MTV's Spring Break that premiered in Daytona Beach and then later beamed directly into my preteen eyes as I sat cross-legged on the carpet thinking that maybe one day I could go to Spring Break too. It seemed like this was the place to party in America, and pop culture was yearly saturated with this massive frat party that came to define our image of Florida. And yet, somehow, these out-of-control fuckboys rarely became our Florida men. More after this. And now, back to the show. Goofing their preppy faces up for their mugshot has become a little rite of passage among drunken spring breakers. But those shots just don't do it for us. We are not impressed. They don't have that X factor we are looking for. We want something more like Jerry Springer than Spring Break. As you can hear about on our episode called Trash Talk Shows, these programs are the spiritual child of the traveling freak shows of yore. And similarly, there seems to be a freak show legacy in many Florida man memes, conjuring images of tattooed men who shocked and awed Americans in sideshows traveling from coast to coast. While these co-eds were growing spring break into a cultural phenomenon throughout the 1960s, just four hours away, a very different kind of scene was unfolding. You see, Every winter, these so-called freaks in their traveling sideshows had to occupy themselves until the next summer season, with a great many going full snowbird, spending their winters warm on the west coast of Florida. In 1967, two performers known as the world's strangest couple arrived in a little town called Gibsonton where they opened a trailer park and a fishing camp specifically for their freak show friends. Al Tomaney was known as the giant. He was eight and a half feet tall, and he was married to a two-foot-tall woman named Jeannie Tomaney, or the half-girl, and together they began their unique project. 
Within a couple years, hundreds of performers and carnies would set up residence in Gibsonton, transforming the town into a very different kind of place. The post office had a low counter for little people, the only one in the nation. And Gibton, as it was known, actually refined their zoning laws to allow exotic animals and the storage of large carnival rides. Neighbors, both carnies and non-exceptional citizens alike, both bought their fruit from the stand owned by the Hilton Siamese twins. They passed by bearded ladies strolling the sidewalks, fire eaters practicing in the town square, conjoined twins, alligator men, lobster boys, and monkey girls, all of whom drank together at a bar that showcased offbeat circus talents off-season. A very interesting open mic. By and large, it became their town, and outside the community, tall tales were told of carnies snatching children. Their community was so insular as to produce a special carny code of unconditional support, as well as an entire language they called carny that only they could understand. Or so the story goes. Now we can fast forward for a second to 2011, just one year before the Miami Cannibal became our first viral Florida man. When the fourth season of the massively popular American Horror Story premiered, the setting was a place called Jupiter, Florida, based on Gibsonton, and the characters were inspired by some of the freaks who had once lived there. Though Ryan Murphy's homage tells a different story, the pieces of a disturbing event are still present. The sensational murder of a freak show performer that would come to define the town and cast a true crime pall across the population. His name was Grady Stiles, and he was known as the Lobster Boy the fourth generation of his family to be born with ectrodactyly, or cleft hands, and he was also an infamous abuser to all who encountered him, definitely the most hated guy in town. Years before, this legendary asshole had murdered his daughter's fiancé to prevent them from getting married, but he was let off the hook when there were no facilities to care for his particular condition. He continued his reign of absolute terror until he was murdered himself by his wife and a 17-year-old circus performer that she teamed up with. The Orlando Sentinel story reminds one of the Miami Cannibal headlines, like a dark Florida man meme we might read today. Carnival's lobster boy killed. Wife is charged. His deformed hands shocked the sideshow circuit. He claimed he used his claw during sex. And dished out a nightmare at home. It's kind of like Satan himself. The murder of Lobster Boy, next Sunday at 9 on the E! True Hollywood Story. This was the kind of story we truly craved in the 1990s. 
when a lot of us were super obsessed with an even more problematic era of true crime. Shows like World's Dumbest Criminals and Wildest Police Chases, and of course, Cops, allowed America to participate in an exciting ride-along with real police officers, like those of Florida's Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, which worked with the show for 15 seasons, delivering footage of the kind of wild criminals that would come to inform our Florida men today. This was a major fad. Cops was the most popular reality TV show throughout the decade, consistently bringing in audiences of 8 million an episode. Unsurprisingly, analyses from 1994 and from the last few years have shown that the program disproportionately arrested and aired video of black people and other people of color. Though the accused must sign a release to allow their faces to be shown on television, those tracked down in the highly recommended podcast, Running From Cops, felt coerced into signing by the police, were not in a sober enough state to consent, or were even harassed by producers. Many of those arrested on episodes of Cops later had their charges dropped, and yet the episodes will never be pulled from circulation. Everyone just assumes they are guilty. Laughably, each episode opened with the line, all suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. There are more than a thousand episodes out there, and they often play more than 20 times a day across all channels. As bad as this is, and it's bad, when it comes to Florida Man, there isn't even a waiver. The mugshot and charge and police report are all public, and pretty much anyone can use it pretty much however they want, pretty much forever. I think that the Bushes are intentionally trying to rig this election. It's a lot of whining and complaining about the outcome of an election that didn't go their way. There are dimpled ballots, there are ballots with creases, there are ballots with lipstick on them, there are ballots with handwriting on them. Bush won twice! Bush won twice! These people are as stupid as the day is long. Where are you getting the votes from now, buddy? Where are you getting the votes from now? Let us see the ballots! Florida, long comfortable in its freak show-esque spotlight, would soon enter the far darker freak show that is American politics. In the year 2000, the state would become the vitriolic battleground for the future of the nation the election between Democrat Al Gore and Republican George W. Bush. It was the pivotal state whose electoral college votes would decide the next president of the United States. At this time, claims of election fraud, of election interference, of conspiracy were the domain of Democrats. But let's just say in this case, there were perhaps more legitimate grounds for a recount, considering the race came down to a meager 537 
votes. At first, based on faulty exit polling, all the major networks had called Florida in favor of Gore. Big mistake. Soon, Fox would challenge the results. Gore would concede, then unconcede. The vote margin so slim that a recount was actually automatically triggered by state law. What followed was a shit show of the highest order. With confusion over misleading and poorly punched out ballots, with accusations of corruption, when the conservative-leaning Supreme Court took George Bush's side with help from his brother, Jeb Bush, then governor of Florida. To this day, disagreement exists about just who won Florida, no matter the fact that Gore had won the popular vote by half a million. The state's seemingly shady role in securing a Republican presidency left a bitter taste in the collective Democratic mouth, with The Daily Show's Jon Stewart calling Florida a, quote, giant cockroach-choking, hazard-infested, hooters-dining, reptile-abusing, Everglades-draining, election-ruining, stripper-motorboating, ball-sweat-scented, genitalia-shaped, 24-hour mugshot factory. And in fact, the Florida man we know today would be nothing without the coveted mugshot, the accoutrement that makes or breaks the headline. The face tattoos, chaotic hair, wild red eyes, drunk mouths, thousand-yard stares, some unique quality that grabs the eyes of the public like posters lining the outside of a sideshow tent. But unlike the sideshow performers of the past who had control over when and how they presented themselves, Florida Man is different. In 2013, at the same time that Florida Man was coming into the national spotlight, a new industry was having a banner year. More than 80 websites were launched with URLs like mugshots.com, mugshotsusa.com, and bustedmugshots.com all of which had entirely automated software that combed for and then posted arrest reports and mugshots in states where that information is public. On just one of these sites, you could find 15 million mugshots with infinite ugly ads popping up and lining the homepage, the way that these websites make money. But don't worry, some of these companies are reasonable generous even, willing to take down the mugshot if requested by a person who can prove that they were not convicted of the crime. Many others charge a fee to remove the photo no matter what. And if that's not fucked up enough for you, there is a second industry known as the reputation management industry. Companies that offer to clean up your Googleable online profile for the eyes of potential schools, employers, or relationships. One service they offer is the removal of mugshots on these tabloid sites. But here's the thing. 
Sometimes these two entities, the mugshot publisher and the reputation management company, are two arms of the same business. It's a pretty dark scam that has led to extortion lawsuits and the arrests of those who profit off of what the American Bar Association called in 2018 an online extortion scheme. Of course, getting a mugshot removed from one of these websites only goes so far. A lot of times it's pretty much impossible to remove anything completely from the internet. As a comparison, we can actually look all the way back to the advent of photography in the 1800s, when rogue galleries began popping up in cities across the country, with local authorities photographing those they arrested, and then inviting the public to come look at a room full of these framed outlaw mugshots. If the accused were proven not guilty, then their pictures were turned toward the wall. So, just like today, they never fully disappeared. Despite Florida's history as a Spanish territory that once gave equal rights to the formerly enslaved, after its transfer back into American hands in 1845, it became a Confederate slaveholding state. After the Civil War, the Florida legislature sought a way to fill the gaps missing since the outlawing of slavery, and they, along with other Southern states, created the Black Codes, arresting mostly Black men on trumped-up or fabricated charges. In addition, they created a system of convict leasing in which prisoners could be used as free labor for both private companies and public government projects. In an attempt to attract wealthy residents and to increase its population and power, Florida kept its taxes historically low, balancing their budget by using this prison labor to build the infrastructure they needed, with the assumption, of course, that all this would help the economy and then trickle down. The prison population increased almost tenfold, jumping from just 125 in 1881 to 1,071 in 1904. Throughout the 20s and 30s, convict leasing practices would slowly be made illegal throughout the southern states and then formally outlawed by Franklin Roosevelt in 1941. But adapted versions of the same system still exist today, with inmate population increases due in no small part to the 1990s war on drugs and crime that filled our state prisons at unprecedented rates, with help, of course, from crime reality TV, from shows like Cops. But as has always been the case, the middle and upper class, drunken, unruly college students of spring break who are corralled into special chain link jails stationed across the beach will likely not face the same kind of consequences as Florida man, or they'll at least have the resources needed to save their reputations and their future. 
Currently, around 3,500 Florida inmates, 43% of whom are Black and almost all of whom are low income, spend time outside the wire on community work squads in public waste, road maintenance, construction, and landscaping, places like graveyards and state universities. Though they provide millions of dollars worth of labor for state projects, they are paid nothing. Florida is one of only seven states, the others being Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Texas, that provide zero monetary compensation for this work. Over the years, Florida has gutted educational programs that have proven to help inmates not reoffend, while providing very limited or functionally useless vocational certificates, even for those who've become extremely proficient in the field that they're working in. This makes it far more likely that the inmate will reoffend and end up back in the same prison, able to provide more free labor for the state. According to a 2019 investigation by the Florida Times Union, it is not violent or sexual offenders who make up these community work squads but the safer brand of prisoner, the low-level offender, many of whom may have once been our Florida men, many of whom are in serious need of help for the issues that led to this wacky behavior in the first place. But at the same time, the state doesn't score particularly high when it comes to rates of drug use or mental illness. But what it does score high in, or rather low in, is how much the government is willing to spend on the programs that address these issues. For years, Florida has ranked 49th in per capita spending for public mental health-related programs, with Mississippi spending three times as much and Vermont spending 10 times as much. We are not naive. We know what we're looking at when we look at these memes. Of course we do. We know we're often seeing the worst day of someone's life, the culmination of drug addiction or untreated mental illness. We're seeing a formal transfer of a citizen into the clammy hands of the criminal justice system. We know that for many of these Florida men, the future will not be funny, and the past likely wasn't funny either. When we look at Florida man, we're not looking at Florida man as a criminal, and we're not looking at him as someone pitiable. It's not the true crime of it that interests us, not the tragic backstory or the consequences that will follow. No, it's a moment in time that we are interested in, transcendent and suspended forever in time. That moment when we see a person shuck off society completely and really live boundaryless, for better and certainly for worse. 
The creator of the original Twitter page began distressing over his role in the Florida man phenomenon as he began receiving stories from fans that were darker than they were before. Disturbing stories that were not fun to read. Stories of violence. Stories more like the Miami cannibal. More like the murder of Lobster Boy. He began to feel as if he had created a monster. Attorney John M. Phillips, who actually specializes in Florida man cases, has represented several people who've gone viral for their peculiar crime stories. He believes that the archetype actually presents a, quote, free-spirited recklessness that doesn't put other people in harm's way. There is a reason that Florida Man's moniker makes him sound like a superhero. If we were to crown him royalty, we might dub him the Prince of What If. The state of Florida has more coastline than all of the contiguous United States. One can become possessed by an absurd infinity of ocean a horizon line where mirages wave their wild nonsense, the ghost ships and diving ghost planes of underground rum runners, the humid swamps full of the creatures of urban legends, the stories of freak show performers sunbathing in their freak show town, and the fossil footprints of uproarious cracker cowboys shooting cannonballs at the sky, snakes exploding in a chorus, the alligators inside somehow still alive. Just like it does yearly to its spring breakers, it seems that Florida calls out to the inevitable wildness in us all, urges us toward reckless abandon. Florida is that voice inside us that eggs us on, a beer in each hand, yelling, fuck it, come on, man, just do it. We've got one life to live. Let's get weird with it. This was American Hysteria. If you want more of our show, you can head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria to get ad-free episodes, as well as access to Hysteria Home Companion, a talk show and sometimes a live stream where producer Miranda and I discuss all the hottest gossip from the cutting room floor. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria. You can find us on social media at American Hysteria Podcast on Instagram and at Amer Hysteria on Twitter. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound designed by Clear Como Studios, co-researched by Riley Smith, and co-produced by Miranda Zickler, with voice acting from Will Rogers. Thanks, as always, for listening. And may you honor the Florida man inside yourself within reason, okay? Have a great week.
It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com